Well, this weekend, I want to talk about how Elijah's self-sabotage is called, okay? And if you're named Elijah in this place, or you're tuning in and that's your name, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about the one in the Bible, okay? And I uh, felt a little bit awkward yesterday evening as I spoke this message, Pastor Elijah was sitting front row here, and I think he felt very guilty along the way, but not about the Elijahs that are here. Now, firstly, I want to begin by saying that the concept of living a perfect life whereby we have accomplish everything that God has for us is honestly not possible. I think the only person ever in all the history of mankind, past, present, and future, who would ever be able to accomplish uh, everything that God had for him would be our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Um, whether it's from his birth to his uh, childhood, his teenage years, his adulthood, his ministry, even to his death, the Lord walked perfectly fulfilling everything that is in the will of the Father. He walked without deviating even for a single moment away from how God planned for him to live and God's intentions for him. Even the content of what he spoke, the way in which he spoke it, everything uh, fulfilled the will of God. And that is why the Bible declares to us that Jesus alone is without sin. Because what does it mean to be without sin? You know, the, etymo, the, 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 the meaning of the word sin is a pictorial um, uh, definition that is given to us in the Hebrew, whereby sin means to shoot an arrow and for the arrow to miss the mark, right? And that's the definition pictorially of what sin is. And in the life of Jesus, Jesus completely hit the mark for everything that God intended for him, amen? But as for us, this is far from the reality, I think. Scriptures bear witness to the fact that we have all sinned and we have all fallen uh, from the glory of God. Amen. Think about the great men and women in the Bible. Noah got drunk and he cursed his son Ham. Abraham listened to Sarah. And together, they, uh, and, and through that uh, um, um, listening to Sarah, he produced uh, Ishmael. Moses struck the rock and failed to enter the promised land. Amen. Samson lost his consecration, was defeated. Um, David sinned with Bathsheba and also in the number of Israel, and that had dire consequences on various people. Amen. Solomon had many wives and they led his heart astray. Jehoshaphat made a wrong alliance and for several generations after that, it had a tremendous and terrible impact. Peter acted the hypocrite before the Jewish people and as a result, that hypocrisy is recorded for us in holy scriptures for all eternity. Amen. How would you like your mistakes to be public knowledge and public record for the rest of eternity? Uh, Paul also acted harshly towards John Mark and uh, dismissed him, but later on had to ask for John Mark to come back to him. Now, the above are just a few examples that are in scriptures, but can I say this? We take great comfort in that God knows our human frailty and weaknesses uh, much too well. And because of that, He has already made provision in advance for all our mistakes and our missteps. Amen. Uh, and yet, these examples are written here for us because it is there to warn and to forewarn us of the pitfalls that surround us. Amen. Now, this weekend, I really want to just zero in and examine Elijah. And you might ask me, why Elijah? And I think Elijah, because his struggles really help us to see and to consider the struggles that we go through when we are going through a season of fatigue and weariness. Right? I mean, you ask people today, you know, how you, many times people say, oh, tired, tired, right? Fatigued, tired, or weary, I am 100% certain that all of us here have felt at some point or another these thoughts, I mean, these um, state, right? 
Uh, in fact, our lives are such that we are structured uh, to prepare us for tiredness and for pressure and for difficulties. Even from a young age, right? You ask any school children now, there are seasons or periods of intensity that they have to go through. Say, exam period is coming, you know, or, you know, final exams, PSLE, O-levels, or if you're in a uniform group or you're in an athletic uh, group, then there are competition period that comes that basically there's a season of intense pressure. And the funny thing is as we grow older, these moments of pressure, they don't subside. Instead, they grow in intensity, in duration, and the underlying subject that causes the pressure becomes more and more consequential. When we were kids in school, if you were to miss a deadline, the teacher may give an extension of the deadline, you get a little bit of a reprimand, and that's it. But when you're working as an adult and you miss a deadline, the consequences could be millions of dollars, amen? It could be a future of the company, it could be many other things, the consequences are just far worse, and life simply gets significantly more complicated as we go along with it. Now, as I consider the life of Elijah at this point in my own life, I find myself being able to appreciate a lot more about what he's going through. When I read the narrative and the account of what Elijah went through, somehow I can feel it more than ever, the pressure that he felt, right? The intensity of the pressure he felt when he uh, had to confront the prophets of Baal in Mount uh, Carmel somehow just seems more palpable today when I read it than I, when I was in my 20s. The seven years of drought when he was a fugitive, wanted by King Ahab, he felt lost, he felt the sense of loneliness in the wilderness and then as an alien in a foreign land. I wonder how many times Elijah struggled and he, was, he felt conflicted about the call of God and the personal sense of the prize that he has to pay it and he's, he must have prayed to God and says, Lord, how much longer must I endure this? And especially the loneliness in this struggle, so much so that, you know, it, I, it actually led him to a point where he complained about the loneliness to the Lord. Amen. So I want to, with this setting, help us to consider Elijah uh, at the point where he fled Jezebel and then he encountered God at Mount Horeb. And I want to give us a couple of pointers that we can take from his life. Now, the first one consists of three words, eat, drink, and sleep, okay? Now, when you think about these three words, oftentimes when we're pursuing the Lord, these three words are not the first thoughts that comes to our mind. They don't seem to be very, very spiritual. You did not know if you, you know, I wonder you, if you came to church this morning thinking that, hey, the pastor is going to talk about eating, drinking, and sleeping, and would that have anything to do with my spirituality? Now, firstly, let me qualify this before you misquote anything that I say, okay? And by eating, drinking, and sleeping, I'm not talking about binge eating. Some people, when they're under pressure, they just eat and eat and eat, okay? And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not ta talking about drowning our sorrows in alcohol and hoping that when we sober up, our problems are gone. And I'm not talking about trying to sleep away all our problems, pretending they're not there at all. But this is what I believe. I believe that when we are fatigued, when we're under pressure, these three particular areas, eat, drink, and sleep, become something we must all the more be cognizant and careful about in our lives. Amen? You see, Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, he's fleeing Queen Jezebel. At this point, let me describe to you what he's going through. There is this tremendous physical fatigue and mental fatigue that's setting in on Elijah because he had to confront 450 prophets of Baal. Now, 
I don't know how many people that are here in this auditorium, 800 people maybe. Can you imagine confronting half of the people in this auditorium and everybody is angry at you? Their, their murderous intents are directed towards you. Dagger eyes staring you down. If they had a moment of you know, freedom, they would come and they would slaughter you and kill you without any hesitation. And sure enough, Elijah did not have to fight them physically, but can you imagine the mental, emotional strain of facing down 450 opponents? It must have been exhausting. And when, this, when he finally won the battle against these false prophets, he then had to orchestrate the execution of these 450 prophets before entering into an intense time of intercession to break the drought that is over the nation of Israel. When he finally gets the breakthrough, he then runs, and not only does he run, he outruns Ahab and his chariots, the horses, and all this in the midst of a heavy downfall as God brings rain again to Israel. And even then, his day doesn't end. Jezebel issues a warrant for his arrest and execution, and so Elijah has to keep running, this time running for his life, confronted and gripped by fear in his heart. He goes on for another day's journey. By the end of that day, he must have gone at least 24 hours without sleep, without rest, without food. I don't know. What I do know, he's absolutely at his end and exhausted. He's so discouraged. He's so down, he's so depressed that the only thing that he could do was to call out to God and says, Lord, please just end my life. This is enough. And then he collapses into a deep slumber. It is at this point that God begins a process of restoring and dealing with Elijah. He goes on by sending an angel to Elijah with a simple but necessary solution that will set Elijah on the path of recovery. And the solution is these three words, eat, drink, and sleep. Now, some of us sitting in this place, this is precisely the three words that you need to hear. Eat, drink, and sleep. I give every one of us permission right now to start thinking what you're going to eat for lunch later, okay? <laughs> you see, eat, drink, and sleep are essential aspects of the life that God has blessed us with. We are created with a physical body that needs to be sustained by these three things. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden amongst the first instructions given to them were dietary ones, what you can eat, what you can't eat. Do you know that in the Torah, the laws of God, a substantial portion is given to instructing us on what we can eat and what we cannot eat. Now, I understand that there's a spiritual interpretation of that. But I want to say this, that as concerned, as, the, as, as God is with those spiritual aspects, God is concerned with what we eat Amen. Because our physical bodies depends on that. What you feed yourself, you're going to become. Right? And when we are going through times of pressure, there is a need for us to replenish and provide nutrition to our bodies physically. Today, we have this huge body of knowledge about how to eat well and to eat properly. And I want to encourage us, don't be lazy. Don't just eat what is convenient. Know that God created food for us physically and God wants us to look after the physical body which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen? The Bible doesn't say your spirit is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Without your body, you're not going to be able to serve God in any way whatsoever. You know, when I was growing up, we learned the food pyramid and it's a pyramid, right? Eat you know, the most thing you must eat are carbs. But today we understand that that's not true, right? And so understand these things because food gives us strength and our physical strength enables us to think clearly. 
and to take mastery over our emotions and our thoughts. Amen. And then there is sleep. You need to sleep well and you need to sleep sufficiently. Sleep can be one of the most spiritual things that we can do. Do you know that Jesus in his time of ministry always brought a pillow with him? In Mark chapter 4, we're told that they boarded a ship. And then the narrative tells us that Jesus was asleep on a pillow. Now, it's a fishing boat. This is not a luxury yacht where they provide pillows, right? Where did the pillow come from? Jesus brought the pillow with him. Next Sunday, I'm speaking here again. Bring a pillow with you if you want to, okay? <laughs> Just don't do it when Pastor is speaking, okay? And guess what he did? I mean, he had... 12 disciples with him on this boat over several hours rowing over the Sea of Galilee and he has this time dedicated with them. He could disciple them. He could speak into their lives. He could minister to them. He could prophesy over their lives. He could correct them. He could have done all these things, quality time with the disciples. But guess what he decided to do? He decided to sleep. Imagine this. In the weight of importance, Jesus decided sleep was more important than quality time with his disciples. And the reason is because sleep is important. Psalms 127 verse 1 to 2. In verse 1, what we're so familiar with, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. This is so instructive. We need God to be involved in this. And then verse 2 really spoke to me personally. It says, in vain, for it is vain for you to rise up early. Man, I looked at this and says, you know, every morning I wake up 5 a.m. If it's a Sunday this morning, I woke up at 4 a.m. And here the scripture says, it's in vain for you to rise early, in vain for you to sit up late. I sleep 12, 12.30, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And I'm looking at this scripture and says, wow, it's in vain for me to, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. Hey, that's my diet for, for days and years now. Carrying the load and the burden of the church and the people that are there and praying things through the bread of sorrow. And then the, the scripture says, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Have you ever thought that the measure of spirituality is not how early a man of God or a woman of God wakes up and how late she sleeps or he sleeps? But a measure of a beloved is that God gives them sleep because they can trust God to be at work and not dependent upon them. Because they know God is the one building the house. Amen. There are some scriptures that changes the way we define things around us. God gives His beloved sleep. You see, today we understand so much more about the power and the need of sleep that we have. Science has shown us the amount of sleep we should have, when is the best time we should sleep, and the benefits that sleep brings to us. Rest is not a bad thing. Rest is a very, very spiritual thing, and rest originates from God. The one person who doesn't need to rest decided that on the seventh day, he will call everything to a halt. And he says, he calls it the Sabbath and God himself rested. God commands rest. And the depiction of our final destination is that we are to strive to enter his rest. Amen. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is to guard against self-sabotage. You see, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10 to verse 14, that these are two verses that Elijah, uh, that records for us Elijah's response to God when God asked him a simple question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, this is something important for us to consider because when something is repeated twice in the Bible, there is always 
a message embedded between those double mentions. The Bible is very efficient in the usage of its words. And God is not naggy. He's not repetitive for the sake of repetition. But there is a purpose for it. So in this point, Elijah is discouraged. He's pretty much wanting to give up. He's burned out. He's exhausted. He just wants to end his life. This is the lowest point of his life. And then God comes and he asks him this question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I've often wondered, how did God ask this question? Because we all, we've all experienced low points in our lives, right? So did God say to Elijah at this low point, he says, what are you doing here? Because when we face a problem, when we face issues, and we feel we are down, oftentimes the first question we ask is this, what did I do wrong? How do I get out of this ditch? What do I need to do now? And it's always about the works. What can I do right now? Actions. Or maybe God asked him, what are you doing here? And that's the other default for us, that when we have issues with problems, we point fingers at ourselves. You know, it's me, I'm the problem. We, we start hammering ourselves. You know, I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, disregarded. You know, I'm unfavored, I'm unloved, I'm not blessed. Or did God say, what are you doing here? And maybe we then we also begin to question our location. Is this where I'm supposed to be? Did God really speak to me that I'm supposed to be here? You know, if God really spoke to me, then what am I going through this low point in my life? Now, I believe that God asked in none of these tone above, but instead God's question is always to bring us to a place of insight about ourselves and then to inch us towards our journey with Him. You see, examine Elijah's response twice. He has asked the same question twice. He answered the same answer. And he answered in five statements. He said this, I have been zealous for the Lord God of hosts. I have been zealous. Because the children of Israel, they have forsaken your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. Now, Five statements consist of two self-justification and three accusations against Israel. And the response of Elijah here poses a little bit of a problem for us. The first is this, too much self. We clearly can see this, that Elijah is so burned out and so overwhelmed by the problems that all he can see now is himself. All he can see is his pain, is his hurt. You know, his preoccupation is all about himself. He, come, he has become his own reference point. And the result of, is that his principal consideration is no longer about God, God's calling or God's people, but it is all about him. This is where we begin to think that we are right and people are wrong, that we have done everything that is right and everybody has wronged us. We have made the sacrifices and yet there is not a just recompense for what we have put in. And everything about ourselves begins to overshadow us and we can no longer see anything else but us. Now, if, we, if you find yourself in such a state, if you find your internal conversation always about yourself, I want to warn you to break out of that. I found myself in this place many times. It is not a healthy place. It is not a healthy place. The second problem is that he begins to accuse instead of defend. Now, this is a problem. God never called his servants to be accusers, but to be defenders. That when we stand before God, we stand not as an accuser to God of the very people to whom we are called to reach and to serve. Instead, we are called to defend and to intercede and to ask for mercy. You see, there is, this is not the only example of something like that happening in Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. 
80 years after Moses flees from Egypt, God comes and gives Moses a call and says, I called you to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And Moses' answer to God is this, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Well, Moses is saying this, 40 years ago, these people betrayed me. They're stiff-necked. They're a difficult bunch. You know, the trauma caused by the rejection 40 years ago of Moses still resides there in Moses. And Moses speaks against the people that he's been called to. Now, it is not recorded for us in the canon of scriptures, but Jewish traditions in Shabbat 97a verse 4 records this. That in response to this, God answered Moses at this point and said to Moses, they are believers and children are believers, but you, Moses, will ultimately not believe. You see, the, the, the Jewish sages believe that because Moses accused the people that he was called to lead, in the end, their children entered the promised land, but he did not enter the promised land. There is something about standing in the place of an accuser that bounces back to us so that something is lost in what we want to do. You see, Moses' statement about the children of Israel, is it true? Absolutely. Read Exodus to Deuteronomy. They were a difficult bunch of people to lead. Amen. And it's true. Elijah's accusations about Israel, is it true? Yes, 100% true. They broke the covenant. They tore the altars. They killed the prophets. But even if all these statements are true, it still does not give us the right nor the prerogative to accuse because when we accuse, we stand in the same position as the accuser of the brethren, the devil who does those things, who is an expert at accusation. God never called us to stand in that place. But instead, we are supposed to stand in the place of the defender, to stand in the gap for people that even when statements are true, when we would choose to ask the Lord and says, God, stand in mercy. God, would you have mercy? Something is released in the hand of God to begin to move in a situation, amen. And I wanna encourage y'all, can you imagine as a pastor, every day I pray for the church, then in the morning I stand before God and says, look at this bunch of people in Cornerstone, stiff neck, ask them to serve, don't want to serve, after we sell leaders, Lord, will you afflict their lives? <laughs> can you imagine if I stood there and prayed like that? But you want someone who stands in the and says, Lord, mercy. Lord, your goodness, your grace, your blessings be upon them. Amen. And the more we are, you know, you can never accomplish the expansion of God's kingdom by adopting Satan's methods. You can only do so by adopting God's ways. And God's ways is always a cry of mercy. That's why when Jesus rebuked his two disciples who wanted to call fire down, he says, you know not of what spirit you're of. May we take heed to that. Amen. And then the third thing about Elijah is that he failed to come up higher. You see, between the two questions that were asked, in the, in the intermission between God asking those two questions, something happened. There was an encounter that God brought to Elijah. Elijah was told to come out of the cave he was in, to stand on the mountain before the Lord. And God would pass by in a great wind and tore and broke the rocks in the mountain. He'll pass by in an earthquake and he'll pass by in a fire. And finally, God would come in a still, small voice. Now, examine this whole encounter carefully because it's so meaningful about how God helps us in our lowest point. Think about this. He called Elijah firstly out of the cave that he's in. You see, when we are down and out, we're always in a little cave in our own. We're always thinking our own thoughts. Our minds begin to, to generate stories and narratives, most of which is untrue. And God says, come out of that cave of being alone. 
And then the Lord says, now I want you to stand before me. You see, there is such an important thing. God called Elijah back to his original posture of standing before him. You see, this is such an important description of Elijah because before we know anything about Elijah, before we are told anything, the first time Elijah appeared in the Word of God, we are not told his pedigree. We are not told his genealogy. We are not told anything about how his training was like. All we are told is that he's a prophet who stands before the Lord. And when God calls Elijah back to a place of standing before him, he's calling Elijah back to the original place in which he knew the Lord. He, was, he, he had become accustomed. He knows that this is his position to stand before the Lord. And that's what God, God does. He calls us back to the place of our original posture where we learn to pray, where we learn to be with Him, where we learn to hear His voice. God was reminding and bringing Elijah back to his original position. And then comes the wind, the earthquake, and the fire. And Elijah knows and experienced God in all these aspects uh, or expressions of who God is. And yet God was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. He's not in the wind. But instead, God now comes in a fresh new manner in a still, small voice. God restores Elijah and then brings Elijah to a new plane of knowing him. And only then does the Lord ask the same question a second time. What are you doing here? You see, the moment God has made the initiative and brought us to a higher plane. He does not expect us to answer the same question with the same answer. As we have come up higher in our walk with God, we look at the problems that we've faced in the past and they should look different. Our answers cannot be the same because now we have encountered Him more. We have known Him greater. There is a depth of a revelation He's given to us. We see, we're seeing more. And unfortunately, Elijah's answer remained the same. And this is where the warning comes clearest to us. The task that Elijah was given was taken away from him and now is given to Jehu and Elisha. Just as Moses failed to enter the promised land, Elijah would not be the one to complete the task. And in the end, in the summation of the shortcomings in the life of Elijah, Elijah cannot point to Israel and say, they're the problem. Elijah cannot point to the circumstances and says, that's too hard. Elijah could not point to the devil and says, he's too strong for me because God overcame all these things. Elijah could only realize that it was because he failed to hold on to the grace of God that he failed to fulfill what God has for him. This is why it's called self-sabotage. Amen? But I don't want to end here. I want to end by giving us a perspective of how eternity saw Elijah. The Bible doesn't end here, right? I mean, sure, the task was passed on to Elisha and Elijah did not complete the work that God called him to do on earth. But God did not set aside Elijah. Elijah was tasked to raise up Elisha. Not only that, but he was called to anoint Jehu so that Jehu would finish an aspect of the task that was his originally. But above all that, the final assessment and analysis of Elijah's life was that Elijah became known as one of the two olive trees that stands before the Lord of the whole earth. Zechariah chapter 4 references, uh, references it. Revelation 11 speaks again about it. There are two olive trees that are planted that stands beside the Lord on his left and on his right. And that is why when John and James, uh, you know, mother came to Jesus and says, can my son sit on your left and your right? And the Lord says, no, 
It cannot be because that is determined by, by my Father and it's already been given. Elijah and Moses, they are the ones who appear on the Mount of Transfiguration because they came to this place of communion and companionship with God. And together, the two of them, they are the witnesses. They are the ones who stand on the Lord, who stands on the Lord's right and on the Lord's left. Now, this is what I believe. It's not, it's not narrated in the Scriptures, but this is what I believe, okay? Yeah, this is Lip Yong's interpretation. I believe this, that on Mount Horeb, as Elijah is standing at the door of the cave, the wind comes, the earthquake and the fire. And in all these things, the Lord was not there. And then a still small voice came. And in that moment of that still small voice, what did God speak to Elijah? I believe that at that moment, God opened the eyes of Elijah and showed him the eternal call that he had. God showed him the two olive trees that stood on his left and on his right. And I believe this because, you see, a wind can be felt, its effects, even though the wind blows from a, you know, from a distance. An earthquake, the epicenter of the earthquake might be far away, but still we, will, you know, we would be affected by the shaking of the earthquake. A fire from a distance, you can see it, but the thing about a still small voice is that you cannot hear a whisper unless you are standing right beside that person. And I think that in that moment, Elijah found himself, one of the olive trees standing beside the Lord, and in that place of communion and companionship, the Lord spoke in a whisper. And it was an invitation for Elijah to see the eternal call that God has for him. You see, the faithfulness of God and the testament of God is that despite Elijah not completing the task that he has given, God continued to work on Elijah and the eternal place that Elijah was appointed to have, eventually Elijah attained to it. Elijah became one of the two olive trees that stands to the left and right of the Lord. Despite not completing the task, the truest work that God wanted to accomplish in Elijah's life was indeed completed. The truest work that God calls us isn't a work that He gives us on the earth. And that's not to say that that's not important. It is important for us to finish the work and the task that God has given to us to say to the Lord, Lord, I've run the race. I've fought the good fight. There is a crown waiting for me now. I've done whatever you wanted me to do as much as I'm able to. But I want to tell you the truest work that God calls us to is to come to a place of closeness and intimacy with Him. Amen. It's to be His companion, to be the friend of the Lord. You know, one of the things the Lord's been speaking to me personally about is this word called union. Did you know that when Jesus said to His disciples, He says, I go to the Father to prepare a place for you. For in my Father's house, there are many rooms. And then He says, you know, if you will abide in me, my Father and I will come and we'll make our dwelling with you. You see, the, the, the original Greek doesn't reference that doesn't give the impression that Jesus is going to heaven and he's going to become a construction worker, okay? He's not going to heaven to build houses. Sometimes we think to ourselves, hey, our reward in heaven is a great mansion. But the original Greek in which this is translated actually means union. It is when two persons are so seamlessly united with one another that when you see one, you see the other. You see the other, you see one. This is the invitation God is putting before us, not an invitation to some big mansion we'll have in heaven. God is giving us an invitation of union with Him in heaven. Amen. And this is the truest call. This is what Elijah's account tells us, that hey, we do our best. 
And we seek to do the will of God, but sometimes things happen and some things don't get fulfilled. But I want to tell you the truest work that God calls us to is not about just something that we do, but it's about union with Him. Amen. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.